0: Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious privilege of joining together with your people today. Lord, these are the moments that those, Father, who are denied them probably appreciate them the most. I think of your servant David, so often a fugitive in his life, crying out and longful with uh, mourning God and longing in his psalms that he might be able to dwell in the presence of your people And even there to experience your presence with your people in the assembly of the beloved. And truly better is one day there than a thousand anywhere else. Lord, help us to remember what a weighty privilege it is to join together collectively in worship that you so deserve. Help us, Lord Jesus, to take meaningful lessons from your scriptures today. Help us, Lord, to grow in our understanding and our conception of your beauty and holiness. Lord, I pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened to behold the glories of our God revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture, even as we study just a few words this morning. I pray that that which our mind is insufficient to comprehend and which our voice falls short of articulating, Lord, which we're really too weak to be diligent to, Lord, I pray that that holy word, Father, would be nevertheless in our hearts, on our lips, and animating our actions, our decisions, not by the power that we can muster, but by the Holy Spirit, the same one that raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, quickening and enabling us to be effective, able ministers of the new covenant. We thank you, Lord, for providing us the means to make this possible. Lord, through even what you have planned in this service today, I pray as you answer this prayer that you would get the glory, that your kingdom would grow and expand, and our hearts would be solidly unified with each other on our rock, Jesus Christ, so we might better serve your kingdom purposes in our day and age. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Title of this morning's message is Incarnational Conquest. Turning the term incarnation into an adjective, incarnational conquest. When Jesus was incarnate, when he took on flesh, became a man, and walked among us, there was an imperial conquest in mind, there was a kingdom coming in Christ's words and in Christ's actions that took foothold in His mighty work that required the incarnation and exists and proliferates and takes ground to this day. And this imperial marching forward of the kingdom of God is something that we are involved with. It's something that we are commissioned to be ambassadors of. When we represent Jesus Christ, we're representing a conquering King, a Lord of glory, a Lord of heaven and of earth. And when we march forward, we do so fully armor clad. As Ephesians 6 delivers to us the armaments that we are given the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. Our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In our hand is a two edged sword, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. All of this imagery in the scriptures, you add it together and you realize this is a war, there is a kingdom. There is a sovereign. We are his subjects. There is a realm. There is a context of Christ's authority. And it is limitless. And there is a law. There is a standard of righteousness by which he alone is able to make us judge worthy by the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so in these terms, as we visit the gospel, if we keep that context in mind, I trust that you along with myself will have an awakened understanding of what Christ means when He says, the kingdom of God is among you, upon you, is dawning on you. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has arrived. There is within this idea of the kingdom come an incarnational conquest that I'd like to explore at greater depth today. And in Matthew 12... Our primary text will be from verses 22 to 32. So follow me as I read. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Well, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons? Knowing their thoughts, He, Jesus, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore... Verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Amen. God's holy scriptures. John Pringle, Calvin's able commentator, I quoted several weeks ago in a sermon entitled, Titanium Plowshare. We mention at the end of 2 Corinthians that the gospel, Jesus Christ alone, is the tool sharp enough to dig into the fallow ground of a society hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In Pringle's words, as he opens Calvin's commentaries on 2 Corinthians, he sheds some light as to the power of the gospel. By describing the conditions in Corinth, And I would say are analogous to the conditions that were the case when Jesus was preaching. And he said it's astonishing to consider when we take into view the peculiarly formidable obstacles that opposed the progress of the gospel in the places that were selected as the scenes of its greatest triumphs. That is when Jesus Christ introduced his message of the kingdom of God come, it did not come without opposition. There were authority structures that opposed him. The religious elite are in this passage as well as the principalities and authorities in heavenly places who are doing everything they could by hook or by crook to oppose the advancing kingdom of God. Yet that very stage that was set by the formidable obstacles proved to be a greater display of God's glory when the overcoming power of the kingdom smashed every foe and every obstacle in its way john pringle reminds us that in first and second corinthians those letters were written to a church that had deep problems because of a society hardened by sin to whom they were delivered but as the answers were forthcoming through the writers or through the uh, writings of the epistle of, of the apostle paul in his epistle to corinth they are to us an indispensable support when we find ourselves in need of reformation and restoration and so it is with the words of Christ, that is to say, that the oppositional forces that faced Jesus Christ down, when they were conquered by either a word of his gospel power or a demonstration of his gospel authority, those very obstacles proved useful to the glory of God to display to us the overcoming power of this kingdom that Jesus was preaching. As Jesus confronts authorities ranging from the religious establishment To demonic principalities and powers, the inauguration of the kingdom of God is set in glorious contrast to every opposing force as Christ proves victorious against every possible foe. I'd like to offer you in this passage this morning a heading, and perhaps five ways, where we can see that the forces that oppose Christ setting the stage for gospel truth. The heading is as follows. Demonic activity in Matthew's Gospel sets the stage to reveal the following. The heading again. Demonic activity in Matthew's Gospel sets the stage to reveal the following. Point number one. What believers are supernaturally saved to do. Point number two. Demonic activity in Matthew's Gospel sets the stage to reveal the scope of Christ's ultimate authority. Number three. This activity sets the stage to reveal cosmic kingdom dynamics. And number four, the stage is set to reveal the turning tables of judgment. And number five, if we make it this far this morning, Trinitarian roles in redemption. That's a brief overview of the structure of this message. Now let's dig in a little further Number one, the demonic activity that we see here, the forces in the heavenly places, as it were, the principalities and powers, provided a stage to reveal in Matthew's gospel what believers are supernaturally saved to do. And we see this in the miracles recorded here. Let's back up to this miracle that we see in chapter 12 a little earlier in verse 9. We pick up this narrative as we read here, He, Jesus, went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? This is the naysayers, the Pharisees. So that they might accuse him. Verse 11, He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Verse 13, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored healthy like the other. There's another miracle here. We've read it already. But reading again in verse 22, listen to what Jesus, how Jesus intervenes on the behalf of a man who is demon-possessed. Then, verse 22, A demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Here we have two miracles recorded. A man with a useless hand, withered, lifeless, receives the operating ability of his appendage back to him. And here a man who two faculties, sensory faculties are disabled, his ability to see and his ability to speak, he has both powers restored. The demonic activity... The effects of sin, the debilitating effects of living in this cursed fallen world provided for our Lord Jesus Christ and these two accounts and three examples what believers are supernaturally called to do. The demonic activity in Matthew's gospel did not prove to be a formidable force such that it heightened the stakes and Jesus really had his work cut out for him. No, there was something much more sovereign and glorious and miraculous going on here. These demonic situations were actually setting the stage to declare to us truths and to demonstrate by Christ's healing power and spoken word, authority over death, hell, the grave, sicknesses, and debilitating physical circumstances, ultimately every last effect of sin. And also to demonstrate authority over every principality, power, and demonic force, the worst of evil ever To lay hold of the heart, the soul, and the body and mind of mankind is no match. And there is no contest for our overcoming, conquering Lord. For this king in this new kingdom that's being inaugurated even as we read. I'd like to call your attention to the literary context. We've just covered in recent weeks the second great discourse in Matthew. And this takes place in Matthew chapter 10. We've called it by different names, but perhaps a title we could refer to it as this morning is Disciple Orientation. There's kind of an orientation for the disciples. He calls them in 10.1, His 12 disciples. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. He grants them, delegates them some of this authority that He had been exercising over the sick and the indigent and so on. He also gives them authority to proclaim the kingdom and the words to say, as He's already given in the first discourse... He says this in verse 7, by way of imperative, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. He gives them an idea of the kind of situations they will find themselves in in verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in their synagogues, you'll be dragged before governors and kings and so on. You see, he's preparing him for these altercations with authority structures of the day. Later, he tells him exactly how to interact. He says in the closing of this great discourse, verse forty: Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet receives a prophet's reward, and so on. And there, thus, it closes here in verse forty-two. Whoever receives one of these little ones, even a, or gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water. Because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, will by no means lose his reward. And so we find a theme there of disciple orientation. And in chapter 12 and 11, there's some in-between chapters and narrative before Jesus gets to discourse number three, which in Matthew's gospel is an extended segment of preaching. In chapter 13, we pick up on this third discourse, And we read in verse 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat before the sea. And great crowds gathered about him. So he got into a boat, sat down, the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things and parables saying. And then it follows the parable of the sower and many other parables. And perhaps we could label this discourse number three, kingdom explanation. So all that to kind of lay the groundwork that Matthew chapters 11 and 12 are there recorded between the orientation of the disciples and kingdom explanation. And we find in between that it is declared to us in these miracles, both Jesus' power and authority, not only to rid us of the effects of sin, but also to commission us and equip us to do something. Going back to these two great acts of Jesus' healing power, In Matthew chapter 12, notice again that this man, verse 13, Jesus said to him, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. And I submit to you that in the healing of this withered hand, we have a picture perhaps of what believers are supernaturally saved to do, supernaturally healed to do. What does a man do with his hands but work and to serve? The hands are always a picture of work done on purpose in Scripture, that which you put your hand to do, the mighty hand or arm of the Lord, that which he purposes to accomplish. And so it was with the orientation of the disciples that they were given a commission to work, to serve, and to do. And in the picture of this miracle, I find it a beautiful portrayal of exactly that in a different form. The demonic activity in Matthew's gospel, namely in this case the effects of sin, that would prove to debilitate our physical body. They set the stage to reveal that believers are supernaturally saved to serve. Supernaturally saved to work. And then we continue to read, and if you catch my drift here, I think you can see two other things fairly easily in verse 22 of chapter 12. That believers are supernaturally saved to do. Reading again, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is brought to Jesus, and he healed him. So the man did what? He spoke and saw. This demon-oppressed man hadn't been able to articulate any words in a coherent way, in a cogent way to declare anything. If he was able to make any sounds at all, no doubt it was babble, and it was meaningless, no reasoning about it. And it says here that his sight was affected as well. He wasn't even able to perceive, to see, to take in. The normal faculties that we take for granted in our physical body were denied this man because of the demonic oppression. This demonic activity had robbed him of his sight and had robbed him of his ability to speak. But this demonic activity in Matthew's gospel set the stage to reveal that believers are saved not only to work but to speak. And to see. Believers are saved. To speak. And to see. Jesus had given the commandments to the disciples. To speak the kingdom of God. Jesus had given the disciples commandments. To go. And under his delegated authority. To pray over the sick. Later Jesus would give commandments to the disciples. To go and to disciple. The disciples when they formed the early church. In the book of Acts. They began to work. They formed the diaconate, the group of deacons that would serve the needs of the widow, the orphan, and the indigent. They took care of their own. They equipped through their works this whole community with a new refuge that was set up in the kingdom of God. A place where believers were seen doing what God had set them free in His supernatural power to do. That is to work, to speak, and to see. We were set free by the amazing power of Jesus Christ to open up the eyes of especially the spiritually blind to see our own sin and light of a holy God to repent and to trust that His blood as the sacrifice for our sins is our hope and our salvation. And I love the picture in this miracle that the demonic activity that keeps hearts blinded to sin only sets the stage to reveal what Jesus' supernatural power can do. Jesus' supernatural power saves us to see the gospel as the glorious truth revealed to the soul of mankind caught in his wickedness, depravity, and death of sin. And more than that, the believer sees that the supernatural power of Jesus Christ saves us to speak and to share with others that glorious hope of salvation and to serve them, to work with our hands, to accomplish the great work His kingdom so there you have it perhaps point number one we see in Matthew's gospel that in the incarnational conquest that which the enemy thought would be a really strong tool perhaps to oppose Jesus Christ to kill him to thwart his attempts to provide a roadblock on the path of the Messiah's road to success proved in the incarnational conquest of Christ to be instead a stage a stage to reveal That believers are supernaturally saved to work, to speak, and to see. Secondly, the demonic activity in this section of Matthew's Gospel proves a stage to reveal the scope of Christ's ultimate authority. We see in the questioning that happens here in the give and take with the Pharisees and Jesus Christ and the argument that ensues in verse 23, this exchange. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But, verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. He goes on to explain some, more aspects of the kingdom, both the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But perhaps we can see before getting into that too deeply, that this miracle right here when Jesus set a demonically oppressed man free, and also following the miracle where he created life in the dead hand of a man who was not able to use it prior to his encounter with Christ. Perhaps we can see here the scope of Christ's ultimate authority especially when we balance it against what he has already declared and done in this gospel. Remind, rewind just a little bit with me, if you would, a chapter to chapter 11. And let's go back to back in, in our minds with this demonstration of Jesus' authority, with what we've already read a chapter previous, read in verse 20. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities, to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cheruzin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. If they had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades." For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And here we see very clearly the power of Jesus Christ to judge and to condemn to Hades, that is to hell. Jesus Christ holds within his power the standard of righteousness and will... In every case, without exception, exercise it perfectly to the nth degree on that day of judgment. And only the blood bought righteous, through Jesus Christ's atoning power alone, will be judged worthy by his righteousness, not theirs. And every other, every other individual who lies outside that camp of sheep, every goat who's trusted something else as their justification, will be led straight to Hades, to hell. And they will share the fate that we see symbolically in the Old Testament when fire came down and consumed on repentant cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. This will be the fate of everyone who does not confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In Jesus' first great discourse in Matthew chapter 7, as he wraps up his comments, he closes his dissertation on the, on the law. He establishes himself as the authority to adjudicate it. And he tells everyone listening, that they will fall into one of two camps. Verse 21 of chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Conversely, we read in 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And these passages preceding these healings, this miraculous intervention by Jesus Christ, we see unequivocally Jesus Christ as judge. And we see that there will come for everyone a day of reckoning. And there will and there is a hell prepared for those who are unrepentant, just as assuredly as there is a heaven prepared for those who hang on His every word. But perhaps the scope of Christ's authority is made even more manifest to us in both the side of His judgment to the side of His salvation when we see back to back His power to judge in those accounts with His power to save in these. That is to say, Jesus Christ not only has the power and indeed reserves the right and exercise it to separate the wheat from the chaff with His great winnowing fork, to divide the sheep from the goats on the final day, but he also, by the miracle-working power of his hand, by the authoritative, creative power of his voice, can say to a man with a spiritually withered hand, Stretch out your hand, and the man stretches it out, and it is restored. Just as surely as he can say to a demon-oppressed man, and you can't get more unresponsive than this, Imagine for a moment you're preaching the gospel to someone who pitches argument on top of argument to oppose you. Many of us have family members or friends perhaps we've been working on for a long, long time. We like to call them discipleship projects. You look for every opportunity to make that good point once again. That see, this is why you need to ultimately place your faith in Christ. You see, this is why your own designs and devices fall short. And that person always has some kind of argument to throw back in your face. And you wonder, this is a reasonable person. They're obviously coherent. They understand the words that are coming out of my mouth and entering into their head to some degree, yet they remain blind and oppressed. Now, if that oppression isn't bad enough, just the hardness of heart due to sin, even if you have your reasoning faculties, when we see this situation, really the position that this man finds himself in is elevated. This is not just a man Who has had a hard heart when he hears a good argument for the gospel. This is a man who cannot even articulate an argument. This is a man who can't even understand what's being spoken. He cannot even speak. He cannot even see. But even this man is no match. That is the devil and his influence over him. For the life-changing, miraculous, supernatural power of a God. And through Jesus Christ who sets us free from demonic oppression. This demon-oppressed man in verse 22 who is blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And what did he do? He healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So the scope of Christ's ultimate authority is amazingly demonstrated in Matthew's gospel. Even as the demonic activity sets the stage. No matter how oppressed the heart and soul and even the reasoning faculties of man might be. Jesus Christ's authority can set that individual free from sin and death, give them back their wits, change their heart, renew their ability to see, to speak and to work for his great kingdom. There's one more illustration. I won't refer directly to the verses too, but if you want to study on your own time, in numbers 16, verses 29 through 33. I love to think of back to back with Matthew 27:52 and those two passages are amazing. On the one hand, there's the story of the rebellion of Korah. I remember preaching on this two good Fridays ago. And in the rebellion of Korah, what happened? The ground opened up, opened up and whole people groups were swallowed in judgment, demonstrating the power of God. To swallow and bury alive, the Bible says, straight to Sheol, those who are rebelling against God. But on the other hand, we read, and it demonstrates the scope of Jesus' ultimate authority so grand, on such a grand scale. In Matthew 27, verse 52, that on the night that he was crucified, it literally shook heaven and earth. And this time something different happened. I'm not sure exactly how the circumstances played out in real time, but the narrative records that the ground opened up and those who had been swallowed by the earth were resurrected and were walking around. The scope of Christ's ultimate authority is amazing. The power to swallow straight to hell and the power to raise from the dead. And this is what's demonstrated in Matthew's gospel here. And the demonic activity serves as a great stage to show us the things that Christ can do. Number three, demonic activity in Matthew's gospel sets the stage to reveal cosmic kingdom dynamics. Jesus says, again, picking up in the account here in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, I should back up to 24, but then the Pharisees heard it, and they said, so after the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had cast out this demon... This is how they sought to minimize or dismiss the occasion. They said, it is only by Beelzebul, which is a word for Satan, it is only by the prince of demons, as it were, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will stay, uh, is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided and against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. Here in Matthew's record, this demonic activity, in this case, the argumentative authorities... Represented by the scribes and Pharisees that were opposing Christ, Christ served as an opportunity for Jesus to teach us something about kingdom dynamics. Jesus draws our attention to the obvious, first of all, that a kingdom by definition is united. There is no such thing as a kingdom that is against itself. That's a civil war. That's two kingdoms, a schism within one kingdom. And so he says... Not only is it the case in the kingdom of darkness, but so it must be in the kingdom of light. Jesus says in verse 30, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So do you understand the logic here? As ridiculous as it is to say that Satan would ever cast out a demon, it is that ridiculous to say, I am with Christ but I don't regard his teaching. I do not stand with him. I only subscribe to a little bit here and there. I pick and choose. I cut and paste. I create my own concept of Jesus. I reduce him as a mascot to my, for my own ideas. Jesus Christ takes this opportunity to say, such so-called affiliation with me is nothing short of saying, Satan, cast out Satan. You stand with me. Or you will fall with my enemies. Jesus is telling us. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. These are the truths. These are the kingdom dynamics. There's no weaseling. There's no arguing with God. There are no sinner special interest groups. That hire a crack attorney lobbyist. To go before the kingdom of heaven. And plead our case before the bar of glory. Won't get you past. That judgment seat, it will only get you a front row seat in Hades. There is no arguing with the omniscient. There is no arguing with the omnipotent. You stand with him or you stand against him. And these are the truths. Now, Jesus is pointing out, in spite of these sophisticated designs that looked good to men that the Pharisees and scribes were employing here, Jesus Christ saw right through their scheme, right through their facade, right through their hypocrisy to their heart. And he knew he was speaking to his most venomous enemies, as he later calls them, those who would find like company in a brood of snakes, among snakes and so on. Cosmic kingdom dynamics are illustrated here, even in the interchange and opposition that Jesus received. To help us kind of sort out what the kingdom of God looks like, I just want to remind you of four aspects of kingdom that we've discussed in previous messages. Sovereign subjects, realm, and law. Four elements in a kingdom, as is helpful for me to understand in any way, every kingdom has a sovereign, a governor, a ruler, a king, an authority. Every kingdom has subjects, those under him, citizens, those who populate the realm. Every kingdom has a realm, the reach, the extent, the context of its jurisdiction. And finally, every kingdom has a law, a code, of righteousness that those subjects are required and obligated to follow. And so when we think of the kingdom of God in that way, that's helpful for us. We can kind of assess ourselves and where we stand. Lord, am I a subject, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in good standing before you? And then the mirror of the law is raised before us. and We see ourselves falling short in our sin. As the word of God says, all fall short. Of that glorious standard of righteousness. There is none righteous. Not even one. So we cry out to the Lord. For his mercy. Oh make us righteous sovereign one. I cannot save myself. And what does he do? He sends the only perfect subject's righteousness. Directly into your heart. Jesus Christ in his incarnation. Became a subject of the kingdom of God. In the same way. Yet infinitely uh, glory, more glorious than you and I, but nevertheless, he took on human flesh and he walked among us. And so, this subject, by his law keeping power and by its imputation or transfer to us, is the only way of salvation. The only way we can be a citizen in good standing with King Jesus and his authoritative claim to the only true and righteous law that an immutably holy God requires. For anything to be tolerated and embraced in His presence. And so here, these are these kingdom dynamics that this situation helps to illustrate. If you want to stand on your own righteousness, you want to make up your own law like the Pharisees, you'll get condemned, repudiated, and damned to hell itself. But if you surrender mercifully to the only standards of righteousness that can possibly justify you, Christ's saving work alone then you are, by God's grace and grace alone, a member in good standing before the King of Kings. Amen. Number four. Demonic activity in Matthew's gospel sets the stage to reveal the turning tables of judgment. The turning tables of judgment. There had been authority structures that were set up. They had claimed to be judge and jury over things of religious matters. Yet the tables were turning here. There's three references in the immediate context to judge. And every one of these is an unlikely judge. First of all, Jesus says of the sons of these Pharisees, these naysayers, If I cast out demons, in verse 27, by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Isn't that interesting? Those of the religious elite, well, actually, the tables of judgment will be turned. There will be a next generation that will actually be a judge over them. They will be unseated from their position of prominence and influence. They will be replaced by another. Jesus goes on to expound this theme of the tables of judgment turned, he says in verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign, and so on. Jesus says this is something that an evil, evil and adulterous generation seeks. He later says in verse 41... The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Talk about a group of unlikely judges. What Gentiles, idol worshippers, the reprobate, these men of Nineveh, will stand in the court of judgment against us? Whitewashed tombs, self-righteous, Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious leaders, and so on. Elite and so on, yes, Jesus is saying. And then the third reference of unlikely judge is seen here in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And in this case, the stakes are even higher. Not just the pagan in the eyes of the Pharisees. Not just those who are outside of the covenant community. Not just a reprobate Gentile in their mind. But a woman no less. One who didn't have the privileged stature within their culture. Jesus is saying you will be reduced to such a low status in the esteem of eschatological history. In the scope of what the kingdom of God truly is. That the most lowly of the redeemed will stand in judgment over those who are self-important and those who seek their own salvation. There's coming a day, everyone in this room, and everyone in this world better take note, where the tables of judgment will turn. There are conditions and on the ground that we deal with in the meantime that will always be a failure and justice to some degree, but there will be a turning of the tables soon. Jesus Christ will come back in time, from time to time, to set the record straight. And he will turn over the tables of judgment just as he did authoritatively with his whip in the house of God that was designed to be a house of prayer. And in these admonitions and warnings we should see that just because in his loving kindness he's tarried for a season doesn't mean we shouldn't be mindful and fear him and heed his word. And stay on our knees and keep humble and submissive as the unlikely Gentile who's received his gracious crumbs from the table lest we be guilty of exalting ourselves, being haughty, and then deserving of having the tables turned as God judges in due time. The tables of judgment will ultimately be turned at the great white throne. We read that picture in Scripture. And I'm telling you, for every true believer, it is a great hope. It is in the promise of ultimate justice that we are set free from pursuing justice on our own accord. We are set free to forgive. We are set free from revenge because there is a God, a perfect judge in the heavens, who will turn the tables and one day set everything right. And this demonic activity, a reprobate out of hand, maverick and lawless as it was, nevertheless, notice what it served, the purpose it served in Matthew's gospel. It set the stage to reveal that the tables of judgment were turning. And Jesus set up. These unlikely witnesses in this case to show that his ultimate word and truth will stand even if it's declared among the most unlikely, the weak, the underprivileged, those who have come to the faith that are outside of what man would see as credible, but God nevertheless has saved sovereignly. The final point in this morning's message, Trinitarian roles in redemption. Trinitarian roles in redemption, the demonic activity in Matthew's gospel sets the stage to reveal, in this account of Jesus Christ's work and ministry, the Trinitarian roles in redemption. This is a bit more complex, but it's as rich as it is detailed. I beg you to hang with me and follow as we compare this section with Matthew chapter 3. First of all, I'd like to reread for you what Jesus says in 12 in chapter 12, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, "Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? and if by demons and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Particular attention for this point should be paid to verse 28 but If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, again, pay close attention, verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Turn over with me with that in mind to Matthew chapter 3. And let's endeavor to interpret Jesus' words in the context of this gospel. What is Jesus describing here that is made possible by the work of the Holy Spirit? This is something implied within the text that was planned by the Father God and has been and continues to be the central theme of all of Scripture. There is a Father who predestines and plans there is a Spirit who enables, and there is a Son who purchases redemption. And here we have the distinctive roles in the economy of redemption, if you will, within the Trinity. And this, it goes hand in hand in our understanding of what Jesus is getting at here. But to help us and clarify even more, perhaps, Matthew's account in end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, can come in handy as well. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, a voice Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now a clear, dramatic, and beautiful picture of the Trinity is seen in this account. This is, when Jesus describes the fulfillment of all righteousness, a picture in the eye of the beholder of this gospel of the Trinitarian roles in redemption. The Father who has spoken, planned, and declared, and from heaven announces the celestial affirmation, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And as the active element, as it were, There is descending upon the head of the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, a dove figure. A representation of the Spirit of God descending upon Him like a dove, coming to rest upon Him. And then there is, of course, the recipient of both of these acts, the voice of affirmation, and the active element of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ Himself, our Savior, Redeemer, and Lord In this picture, moving on, led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Keep that in mind. Let's continue to read a couple more verses in chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. So pausing there, the Spirit had descended like a dove. It was equipping and enabling Him, the active element of God's plan to move the plan of redemption forward. And this is where the Spirit moved Christ. ...that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Rewind just in your mind's eye, if you would, for a moment to the Garden of Eden. Original sin itself. Here we have the account of the second Adam in temptation. Recall for a moment the account of the first Adam under similar conditions... What if he, the parent of the human race, had said, Man shall not live by forbidden fruit alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the word from God has said, I may eat of every tree in this garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I'm commanded not to. I will therefore obey. Be gone, Satan. If he had done so, History would be different. There would be no need if things continued as they were for a redeemer. That was not what happened. In this probation period, if you will, in the garden, that is a testing time, where the situations to see if Adam and Eve were going to be faithful to keep the covenant of works, that is, I will bless you with my presence so long as you obey, to see if those conditions would be upheld, it didn't take too long. And those conditions were utterly violated, and our first Adam sinned and plunged all of us, the seed of the human race, into sin. What is happening here when the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness? Jesus, as the second Adam, Jesus, as fully God, yes, but fully man as well, endures temptation. And what is starkly and dramatically different about the Son of Man in this case is when the enemy throws up everything that he can possibly think of to entice Jesus Christ away from the plan and the word of Almighty God, he says to him, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And thus Jesus, the perfect man, the second Adam, endured the probation and was the law keeper. And kept the covenant. And that's the righteousness we needed. Jesus Christ being tempted. Brought there by the work of the Holy Spirit. Enduring it as the incarnate Son. According to the perfect plan of the Almighty God. Was the absolute necessity. In order for any to be made righteous. When Jesus Christ in this temptation and probation as it were. Endured. And triumphed. It was a testament to the incarnational conquest. Of the God man. And when Jesus Christ endured this temptation of sin. And now gave him the ability to impute. To grant upon his death. That last will and testament to you and to me. And Jesus Christ when he died. Passes along his law keeping righteousness. To make perfect and holy holy. All who trust in Him for salvation. Now that's what happened in the gospel exchange. That's what happened in the gospel record. That's what happened when the Holy Spirit moved Jesus to the wilderness. That was accomplished in the mind and will of God. And seed formed before the world began and now taking place in fruition. in The fullness of time right here before the eyes of the onlookers. But the Pharisees didn't see it. They said that this man was operating not upon the Holy Spirit of God being driven into the wilderness to endure temptation or to be activated to declare authority over sickness and demons. No, they said he was of the spirit of Satan. And do you see where this was the ultimate blasphemy? If you deny what I just told you, the sovereign work of the Trinity to accomplish our salvation, if you reject that out of hand, if you say that's so much ridiculous poppycock, And you seek to construct another way. This is the blasphemy that will not be forgiven. Why? Because there is only one way, one truth, and one righteousness. One narrow path that leads to the Father. And that way was prepared by the Holy Spirit who sent Jesus Christ to suffer, to endure, to overcome. And He and He alone is the conquering warrior over our every last enemy and foe. And so even as Jesus says to the naysayers... That if you don't recognize this and submit to this truth, it is in truth the unpardonable blasphemy. So we can conversely revel in the security of trusting and believing the saving work of the Trinity in redemption. Notice once again and finally that the demonic activity in Matthew's gospel set the stage for this to be declared and made known. No, it is not just me acting on my own power. It is by the Holy Spirit of God that my kingdom is coming and doing these mighty works. It is not an unaccountable rogue force that you see before you today, but I am submitting to the will of my Father, and I am not doing some magic, hocus-pocus, self-designed work before you. Instead, I am walking in the footsteps that were predestined before time began to accomplish hope for your salvation. He preaches to the soft of heart, but to the hard of heart, It is indeed the unpardonable blasphemy when they would deny the power of the Holy Spirit alone to accomplish through Jesus' work alone our salvation. And so we find in closing in Christ's incarnational conquest that is so manifestly evident in all the pages of the gospel, but dramatically so in this instance as a demonic activity set the stage to glorify Christ that through His sinless life, through His death and resurrection, Jesus Christ bound The strong man and continues through our work, our words, and our understanding as he has commissioned us to be agents of his kingdom to plunder the house of the strong man. Final verse I'll lead you to Revelation 20 verse 2. Again, Jesus' life, his sinless life, death and resurrection was the very overcoming, conquering force that he was speaking of here that indeed gave him the power to bind the strong man. Verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods till he first binds the strong man and then indeed he may plunder his house? And that's what was happening when he was tempted in the wilderness. We might think that Jesus was really suffering. It was really stressful. But indeed, Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 gives us a better picture and vivid imagery of what was going on here. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Two items in the hands of this angel, this emissary of God. Keys and chain. And in my imaginative mind, I imagine the kind of chain you might see docking an aircraft carrier. Huge. And we got this amazing muscular angel. He grabs this chain of unequaled proportions and it's coiled up there right on the dock of heaven. And his wings fly out. He grabs the chain and you hear the rumble across the decks of glory as he sweeps down with a key in one hand and a chain in another for this incarnational conquest and mission. What does he do? Verse 2 says, He seizes the dragon, the ancient serpent, And again, let me interject with a little imagery. Takes his aircraft carrier chain, whips it like a bullwhip, and wraps it around the devil in an instant and binds him for a thousand years. He seizes that dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended. And here in Revelation 20 verse 2. We have a picture of the incarnational power and conquest of our Lord and Savior. This is not a salvation that was almost accomplished. This was really no contest at all. This was the overcoming victory parade of the Lord of glory. When he through his sinless life, death and resurrection bound the strong man. Satan himself. And continues to do so through our obedience to his work. He plunders his house. And every one of you is spoiled from the enemy's camp. And here we are assembled as riches. As the reward of the lamb that was slain. Purchased by his blood alone. And this picture in Revelation 20 shows us in vivid imagery. That this incarnational conquest was no contest at all. For the Lord of glory delivered an immortal I'm sorry, an eternal and mortal blow to every last enemy. Sin, sickness, demonic oppression, and death and hell itself. Praise be to His holy name. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank You for the glory and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ revealed in the pages of Scripture What a gift this book is to us when we are weary and lacking the strength to summon the energy and courage to face our own enemies, whatever it may be. There is sufficient resources within your holy scriptures to equip us once again with our armaments for war. So I pray for any who might be weary in the battle today and fighting the good fight of faith that they might find their equipment there And perhaps what is spoken today or other verses that you recall to their mind or their own study throughout the week. I pray that we would move forward, Lord Jesus, in faith and conquering confidence, knowing that you have ultimately defeated every last foe, even as you declared it is finished. Father, and I also want to pray for any who might find themselves outside of the camp, who surrender and submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And build their house upon his rock. And who submit to him as their sovereign and say, according to your rule, I stand judged, sinful. And according to your righteousness alone, am I justified. So I throw myself at the mercy of your power to save this day. Lord, in either case, I pray that your kingdom would advance. And we, your conquering warriors, would be diligent to continue to work to speak and to understand in greater detail your kingdom come, your kingdom that has come, and your kingdom that will ultimately be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. All for your glory and namesake, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.